You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. And I am so excited for Matthew 3. I am convinced that this is what we desperately need, this word from Matthew's account, and we also need help and grace in understanding what God would have to say to us. So church, will you join with me and pray for illumination? God, we're we're coming to you again because we need you again. We're coming to you for illumination because illumination and understanding in your word comes from you alone. God, we need you. Would you open the eyes of our hearts that we would see all that you would have to show us in the gospel for encouragement, for salvation, first and foremost, for transformation? God, would you do a work? Lord, I need help. Lord, would you use me in your hands as an instrument, God? Would your word go forward powerfully? Would you do a great work? I pray in the name of Christ. Amen. And would you uh, continue to stand if you're able as we open up to Matthew and as we read chapter 3 together. Chapter 3 is our text as we continue in our sermon series through the book of Matthew. Matthew 3, beginning in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins." But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he, John the Baptist, said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. 
verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Church, this is God's very word. You may be seated. June 10th, 2012, uh, was a memorable day. Uh, This was the day that Jamie and I got married. And there's a lot to remember about that day, uh, but there's a lot of things I forgot as well. It was such a blur, uh, all sorts of things going on. But one thing that I'll remember that I'll never forget is standing at the altar with the pastor, sweating bullets, so nervous, it's like dead quiet, and then all of a sudden I hear Jamie coming. And I knew it was coming because of the long-standing tradition in Jamie's family with her other sisters, where her sisters would be escorted to be walked down the aisle, but they'd be escorted by, of course, my father-in-law in his Chevelle. And he had this Chevelle, he still has it, It's super loud. You could hear it coming from a mile away. He put a police siren on it. So the the engines are going off. The sirens are going off. It was a 1972 Chevelle, small block 350 motor, Elderbrock camshaft with 454 lift, 210 duration, double pump carburetor with a turbo 350 transmission with a shift kit. And I have no idea what that means. But if you know cars you'd know that it's a loud car. And so I, along with everyone else, knew that Jamie was coming. And lo and behold, it wasn't moments after until I see my bride come walking to me down the aisle. And this, this is actually a good picture of what we see here in chapter three of Matthew. This is John the Baptist's ministry. This is where John the Baptist comes into the picture because here in this chapter, John functions as a forerunner to Christ to prepare the way for the Lord. He's a forerunner going before Christ. Better yet, he's a Chevelle, sounding off with loud engines and loud sirens that the Messiah who was born in Bethlehem has come. He's finally come and he's about to start his earthly ministry. And we'll see here in this passage that as John announces the arrival of Christ, he does so with a pointed and essential message centered and revolved around repentance, which truly does prepare the way for something far greater to come. So with that, our headings, we have two headings 
to divide this text before us. Heading one, John, John's baptism. This is verse one through 10. And point two, Jesus's baptism. Verses 11 through 17. So first, John's baptism, then Jesus's baptism. So first, John's baptism. It's been 30 years that has elapsed between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. And if you'll remember, in the last chapter, this was the birth narrative of Christ, where Jesus was born in Bethlehem, then they flee to Egypt, and then some years later, they go back into the land of Israel and settle in Galilee, near Galilee, in Nazareth. So it's been 30 years since that time. And here we see that Jesus is about to start his earthly ministry. And so John the Baptist comes on the scenes and he says, get ready, be prepared, prepare yourselves. The king is coming. John is preparing the way for Jesus and it's not hard to see this in the text. Just look at the first three verses with me. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So it's clear John is on the scenes. He's saying, prepare It's this ministry of making straight the way for the Lord to come. He's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Essentially, the kingdom of God is at the doorstep because the king is standing on the doormat. This is John's ministry. And before we see the king in this passage, we see John. We see this description of his ministry, his, his focus, the purpose for which he came. We see his message of repentance, and we get a bit of description of who this guy is. And in verses 4 through 6, we see that John is a bit of a wild man. Right? He's wearing animal skins. He's eating locusts and honey. He's living out in the wilderness, in the desert. There's so much that could be said about John the Baptist, but I think what's most important about John is really the the center and the focus of his ministry and his message. The heartbeat of his ministry and message is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's this ministry of repentance. And this makes sense because of what we see in Christ, in his own ministry, right? This ministry of calling sinners to come to receive forgiveness of sins. And we see that even before Jesus comes on the scene, we see this response in droves. And if you look at verses five and six, verse five reads, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, to John the Baptist, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This is the heartbeat behind John's message because this is the very heart of God in God's rescue mission through Christ. 
Remember the angel's pronouncement to Joseph in chapter 1, verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. As the people flock to John, their confession of their sins and their baptism of repentance, it's a sign of their appeal to God for cleansing. It's a sign showing that they are turning away and running from their sinfulness, from their sins and running to God. John's ministry and his message are very much in concert with Jesus, which is why this is preparation. So regarding repentance, it must be said that there's a huge gap between the people that we read about here in Matthew 3 and our own experience now. The people of God would have been familiar with prophets, with a message sent by God calling God's people to flee from idol worship and to flee from from sin and to, to repent and turn to God. This would have been a familiar theme for the people of God in this time. And yet for us, in our culture, right now, repentance is either a curse word, right? Or there's just so much confusion about what it is, what it means. What's the nature of repentance? What does it look like? Why? Why even repent? What is that? And so to get a better understanding of what repentance is, we understand what repentance is by understanding what it's not. So we understand what it is that John is calling the people then and now to by understanding what it is not. And we see what repentance does not look like in verses 7 through 10. So verse 7 begins with the conjunction, but... Right, which of course provides a contrast. And what John is doing is he's contrasting, he's, he's juxtaposing the response of the, the people, the crowds in, in verses five and six. Right, they're, they're flocking to the river, they're confessing their sins. He's contrasting these people with people who are not responding in that kind of way. And this is the first introduction in the book of Matthew to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these two religious groups, these two Jewish religious groups in the first century. And once again, there's so much to be said about the Pharisees and Sadducees, but as we will see as we keep moving through the book of Matthew, there is a lot of friction and opposition between Jesus and these religious leaders, this elite group of people who feel threatened Right? This, this, this series, this book is all about the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus comes as the king and he comes with his kingdom and his ethics and all, all of what it entails to be the king reigning supreme and the religious elite do not like this. They feel threatened. And it's important to say not all Pharisees and Sadducees responded in this way. We actually find out in the Gospels, that many Pharisees came to Christ and followed after him and recognized him as the king. But as we see in this text, there is opposition. And it's actually coming from John the Baptist. 
So from the mouth of John the Baptist comes all of these scathing remarks. Once again, it's this confrontational exchange that we get a better understanding of what repentance is by seeing what it is not like. And two things that are underscored that we see here in the text is that repentance does not lose sight of eternity and repentance cannot be replaced with replicas. So repentance does not lose sight of eternity and repentance cannot be replaced with replicas. First, repentance doesn't lose sight of eternity. John knows that these Pharisees and Sadducees who've come to visit, he knows that they're not coming to be baptized. He knows that they're coming to check things out, to see what is all the ruckus about. And so before the Pharisees and Sadducees can even open their mouth, John says, you're a brood of vipers. Literally, he says, you guys are offspring of vipers, of serpents. And then he, he jabs them with sarcasm in verse 7. He says, you brood of vipers, you offspring of snakes, you're not coming to repent and flee from the wrath of God. What are you doing here? That's what John the Baptist says. And he, he revolves this whole ministry and message of repentance around the wrath of God. And so therefore we discover that fundamentally repentance has everything to do with eternity and fleeing from God's righteous wrath against sin. The message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, repent for the king has come to execute his righteous judgment upon sin. The king has come. This is why John would say in verse 12, in his hand is a winnowing fork, this instrument of judgment to sift out the wheat from the chaff. Right? This is at the heart of what repentance is. This will either be the most glorious day or the worst day for all of eternity. And so for us, this is where this text is calling all of us here to wake up. To wake up to the realities of eternity, to God's righteous wrath. Your sin that you either embrace wholeheartedly or the sin that you flirt with, its end, if you follow that rabbit down the rabbit trail, its end is death. That's that's it. There's no other way about it. And so we need to think deeply about the eternal consequences of sin. We need to think deeply about this so that for the purpose of doing exactly what John is calling us to do, to repent, which literally means to change, to turn all of your faculties, your mind, your heart, your affections, your volitions, everything about you, to see the cliff and to say, there is death if I keep going on this path and I'm turning and confessing my sins to God who saves. 
This is what this text is calling us to. Sin, it's desirable and it's pleasurable for a moment, even for a season, right? But hear these words from King Solomon about this warning of where this ends up, where this will take you in the end. Proverbs 5, verses 3 to 5. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. And this, this plague called sin, this isn't just for some people here in the text, near Judea and the Jordan, all have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And this is, this is extremely weighty. And yet, as we will see, when Jesus comes on the scenes, if this piece doesn't click, why would we ever run to Christ? Why would we ever need him? So this is so essential. An understanding of repentance that is not merely worldly repentance. I'm sorry that I messed up. I'm sorry so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, but Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned. This is so essential. So we learn from this text that repentance doesn't lose sight of eternity, and we also come to find that repentance cannot be replaced with replicas. What do I mean by that? Repentance can't be replaced with replicas. So what John the Baptist is doing here in this text is he is calling out and he's pointing out these replicas, this fake kind of safe haven which the Pharisees and Sadducees are retreating to to find comfort and peace from the wrath of God. And one of them is proximity, right? Nearness. They feel a level of comfort because they're near to Abraham, right? They feel safe from the wrath of God because Abraham is their ancestor. But that won't do it. John is very clear. He says, you might be from the line of Abraham, but your, your heart is so far from the God of Abraham. It reminds me of what Jesus says, I think it's in John, when he says, to these religious elite who are proud and feel safe about their position because of their relationship to Abraham, he says, your father isn't Abraham, your father is the devil. Which actually is very similar to what John is saying here. You offspring of vipers. Your heart is so far from God. You think you're safe, but you're not. Replica. Another replica that John is calling out here is fake fruit, right? Fruit that is not in keeping with repentance. And what that means, fruit that is keeping with repentance, this is fruit that proves out your repentance, your trust in God, your turning away from everything as you pursue the Lord. So bear fruit, live in such a way that proves your trust in God, your repentance, your contrition, you mourning over your sin, 
right? And these Pharisees and Sadducees, they look really great on the outside, right? We'll see in Matthew 6 that they know how to pray long prayers and they, 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 know, the, they know the system, right? But inside, they're like rotting corpses, fake fruit, replica. This does not save from the wrath of God. You can staple fruit to a tree and you can convince yourself and deceive yourself and others that you're fine, but at the end of the day, verse 10 stands firmly fixed in the heavens. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And just to be clear, just to be clear here, what what John the Baptist What the testimony of scripture does not put forward is that this looks like perfection. This doesn't look like a perfect fruit tree with perfect fruits. As J.C. Ryle says, light may be very dim, but if there is only a spark in a dark room, it will be seen. Life may be very feeble, but if the pulse only beats a little, it will be felt. It is just the same with a sanctified man or with a repentant man. His sanctification will be something felt and seen, though he himself may not understand it. So what John the Baptist is preaching is not sinless perfection, but a turn, a change of heart and mind and body and will and running toward God because we are sinners and we need saving. That's the message of John. And this is a warning for those who are faking it, right? Deceiving themselves and others. And this is a warning for all of us, right? What kind of fake fruit, what kind of replicas do we lean on? What do we lean on for a kind of safety and a kind of refuge to prop ourselves up? Are you leaning on a dead faith which has all theological boxes checked off and marked off, but you're not bearing fruit in keeping with the thing that you're affirming? Are you leaning on proximity to grace, but not drinking it in because you know you're a sinner in need of mercy and grace? What is it? that you're leaning on? And how might the Lord change us to move and turn away from replicas that don't provide safety to run to the God who is himself our refuge? Once again, what we learn from these verses is the nature of what repentance is by understanding what it is not. This is at the heart of John's message and baptism with water And this is at the heart of Jesus' message and baptism with the Spirit. Which leads us to our second point. Jesus' baptism. Verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John's ministry and his baptism of repentance up to this point 
has been come to the Jordan, come be baptized, come repent. That's been his ministry so far. And John's message is in concert with Jesus's. Jesus came to save from sin, right? And we know that this, this message of repentance, it's actually the same, right? In, in chapter four, the very next chapter, chapter four, verse 17, Jesus, as he is starting his earthly ministry, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same exact message of John, word for word. So this is the same message, but it is so different in substance, which is why John is pointing to the one coming and saying, look, I'm not it. There's one coming who's mightier than I. Verse 11, John shifting away from his own baptism to Jesus's baptism, and we see that Jesus and his baptism is better. John's baptism of repentance is with water. He's dipping people in water. Jesus' baptism is with the Holy Spirit of God. Fundamentally different. Same in nature, in, in, in message, but so different in substance and power. John's baptism with water is an outward emblem of forgiveness. Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit is the substance and source of real and genuine forgiveness of sins. This is how we are even able to believe and repent by that inner working of the Holy Spirit of God upon the sinner who comes to him by grace. John's baptism with water cleanses the body. Jesus' baptism with fire cleanses and purges and purifies the soul of man, the very deepest regions of the heart of man. Jesus and his baptism is better. He is a better baptizer. So John says, there's one coming after me. There's one coming and he has a better baptism. And then we see in the very next verse, verse 13, we see Jesus come. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now for thus It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So we see him come. He finally comes. He came to Bethlehem, he was born, and now he has come in his, the, this inauguration of his earthly ministry. The king has come. And this is an amazing scene, right? We all know this scene. God the Father, Christ the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all present in this glorious baptism where Jesus is baptized. But it's also very perplexing, Like, why is Jesus here? Why is he here? You see in verse 6, it says, they, the crowds, 
were baptized by him, by John the Baptist in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. Jump to verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. This is utterly perplexing because this is a baptism of repentance. Why is Jesus here being baptized? He's the one who is to baptize, and yet Jesus is coming to be baptized, which is why John is so confused and perplexed and says, I need to be baptized by you, not the other way around. So why? Why is Jesus here? Why is the Son of God here? Why is the sinless one from the line of David here in the waters of baptism? Answer, Jesus is baptized in the waters of repentance because Jesus is the one who will save his people from their sins. And we learn, we come to find that the way Jesus comes to save his people from their sins is at his own expense. The big application so far from the book of Matthew has been, what do you do with this kind of king? What do you do with Jesus? Will you submit? Will you bow the knee knee to King Jesus? And a passage like this flips that good question on its head and asks, what will this king do with you? Jesus is sinless. He's not in the water for his sins. He's in the water for yours. This baptism is a picture pointing forward to God's wrath, his righteous wrath against sin being poured out on Jesus at the cross. The sin bearer for his people, taking on the sins that he did not commit. He's in the water for you. The only way for you and I to be saved is for payment to be made. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Payment for sin against a holy and righteous God has to be made. And the only way for us to be made right with God is if sin is paid for and Jesus steps in the waters of judgment at Calvary and he steps in our place and says, I will pay your debt. Jesus' baptism, it points forward to his death and his burial and all that he would take upon himself as the sin-bearing sacrifice for his people. And this goes back to being baptized by the Spirit. The way that we're baptized by the Spirit of God, the way that we receive life and forgiveness of sins, the way that we're baptized into this kind of life is by means of Jesus' own death. This is how this happens. As Douglas O'Donnell puts it, when Jesus went down into the waters of the Jordan River, he began to take on our sin, our dirt, all the scum of all the baptized. Whatever drop of water might have entered into his mouth was his first taste of the cup of God's wrath, which he would drink in full measure 
on the cross. And just picture John the Baptist in this moment. Myriads of people, of sinners, coming to the waters over and over again, baptizing sinners, hearing confession of sin, thousands of sins, and then comes Jesus the Nazarene. The only one who did not deserve to be in the waters. The only one who had the right not to be in the water. And he comes wading into the waters of judgment. And John the Baptist dips him in the water. And raises him up. And there is no confession from the mouth of Christ. But only from God the Father out of heaven saying, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And he does that for you. What kind of king is this? That he would do that for you. We are united to Christ by faith. When we come to him, confessing our sins, turning and saying, I'm busted, I'm broken, I got nothing left. And he grants forgiveness and pardons us by faith, we actually are not only forgiven, but we are given righteousness, the very righteousness of Christ. We are clothed with the identity of Jesus. In Christ, because of what God has done, for those who are in Jesus, God says, that's my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Christ is in the water for you if you would have ears to hear. And why do we repent? Why do we turn? Is it because God is scowling at us from heaven? No, it's because Jesus is in the water. It's the very goodness of God which leads us and draws us to repentance. It's because Jesus is better. And he offers a better salvation and a better rescue. He offers life where we were heading toward the cliff. This is what Christ has done. Are you compelled by this good news? If you are, the application of this text is Come to him. Turn. Come to him. Whether for the first time or for the thousandth, thousandth, come to him. Come to the one who says himself, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls. Let's pray. Lord, we have nothing to offer except filthy rags. There's no safe haven in and of ourselves. We know that replicas don't last. We know that we could fool others, but we will never fool you. And God, even in our attempts to try and avoid 
your wrath, instead of running from it to you, you are gracious and you are kind. You stepped into the waters. God, you saved your people. You've granted forgiveness of sins. You have gifted your people with faith that does not come from within us. It's a gift from you. You've gifted your people with repentance. God, I pray that you would humble us, all of us in this room, all who are listening, God, that you would humble us, that you would break us, that you would do that deep work of the Holy Spirit, that we would come all the way confessing our need for you. God, you are so good. Thank you for providing for us perfectly in Christ. Teach us this week to come to you. We pray in his name. Amen.